following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we continue on in our study of the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever preached, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel, that Matthew preserved these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he communicated them, and we have them. It's amazing in that. You see, Christ came and he established the kingdom of God in the world. That he said, believe in me, repent, believe the kingdom of God is at hand. If you want to enter into the kingdom, you enter in through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No one gets into his kingdom but through me. And he was explaining this incredibly important understanding and that the kingdom of heaven, and as we place our faith in him, receive him as our savior, receive his rights and become adopted as sons and daughters of God. We were once not a people. Now we are a people. We once had no name. Now we have a name uh, that we were lost. And now we have been found and freed from slavery of sin and that we now are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore it's imperative for us to know where we come from, our, our home, our country of origin, because this world was, is designated within Scripture for the believer especially as not our home. We're sojourners here. We're aliens here. Uh, that this world is described as a wilderness. And one of the salient characteristics of a wilderness is in and of itself a desert. It doesn't have the ability to sustain life. That we have to be sustained somewhere else. That we have, as it were, our marching orders, our identity, our law, uh, who we are. Those characteristics come from someplace else. And Jesus, in the Beatitudes that we just finished, described the follower of Christ. He said, if you are a believer, you see this in you, this meekness and this righteousness that is there, a mercy and a peacemaking, and the world won't know you, they're going to persecute you, and you're all of this. And so he comes right out of that, and he says, now knowing who you are, here's how the world should see you. He uses two powerful metaphors, uh, the metaphor of you are salt and you are light in the world. And so he's teaching in chapters 5 through 7. And he's basically saying, guys, this is who you are. When you go out into the world, this is how you should look. This is how you should live. This is how you approach marriage. This is how you approach work. This is how you approach one another. This is it. I'm the father of three sons. And we've raised them in the McCutcheon home. They, they bear the marks both genetically and culturally uh, of McCutcheons in that. And so as we've released them now and sent them into the world, that we still have expectations that they uh, would reflect the family values and the family uh, of origin for them. So as they went off to USC and off to Clemson and off to Queens University, uh, that we've now, we talk with them and when we hear them say something that is out of accord or out of line with who we are, we ask, where'd that come from? Where'd that language come from? 
Or when we hear of behavior that's out of line, as Paul said to Peter, you're walking out of line with the gospel of the kingdom. So when we see behavior that's out of line, we ask, hey, where's that behavior coming from? Remember who you are. Remember your family of origin, but even more importantly, remember your citizenship, that you're from somewhere else, and that the church being composed of Christians brought together in Christ. The church is established as outposts. We are colonies, as it were, in some sense, of the true kingdom, of the true nation put here on this earth. And we're to live by a different law and a different rule. We're not to forget who we are. We have different ethos. We have those different things. So that's important to know and to understand, especially if you're here this morning and maybe you're going, I haven't been back to church in years. Or I've never been to church. I want you to see Jesus' teaching in chapters 5 through 7 of saying this is who you are. And this is how we live together. And you may go, well, that's not the church that I've experienced. And sadly, that's the case very often. But this is the beautiful norm that Jesus brings. And so this morning, coming out of this picture of the Beatitudes, of who we are, he says now, live and represent me this way. So let's ask God's blessing on his word as we come and read together. Father, we ask now that you would speak. For if you don't speak, there is nothing for us to hear. If you don't speak, then we walk away from here today. Maybe convicted on a human level, but not transformed on a spiritual level. So Father, I ask that you would send your spirit afresh and anew. And speak through your word and speak through your servant. As we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 and following. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. Part of the beauty of Christ being the greatest preacher uh, ever and preaching the best sermon ever because he has a simple outline. And here's the simple outline today for you that we're going to follow. It's not complex. Introduction, salt, light, conclusion. Okay? Nothing complex. You don't have to have advanced degrees to understand and to walk right through. That Jesus was saying, we have to introduce it as we have, coming right out of uh, what's before it. And now Jesus says this. You, Christian believer, follower of me, uh, Christ, uh, you are the salt of the earth. He says that emphatically, you and you alone are the salt uh, of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Well, it's important to consider before we jump into understanding salt To understand the world in which we live, and the world in which we live, even by understandings of pagan minds and secular minds, would say this, that the world is moving towards its own destruction. 
that with all of the advancements in technology, with all of the advancements in science, and all of the expanded knowledge of all of humanity, we know and are convinced of the fact that the sun is fading out, and one day the sun will clip off, and that when the sun clips off, it doesn't bode well for us here. And that everyone would understand, both Christian and non-Christian science alone, would acknowledge this fact that we may be able to extend the amount of years that we live uh, on this earth and maybe even make those years better years on this earth. But guess what? It's a one-to-one ratio. Every person is going to die. And there's nothing we can do about it. And that we recognize that the laws uh, of physics and the laws uh, of thermodynamics and all of that, everything is moving in and crushing on itself and it will eventually end. And there's nothing within this world that can save this world. Again, even pagan and secular scientists would say that if they're honest in all of these things. And so that's the world in which we live. And they would say, well, it's just because it is. Now, the Christian enters in, and we understand the world differently. We would agree with all of those statements that the world is in decay, that the world is in disintegration, uh, that the world uh, is a mess, the world is dying. But we would say it's because God created all things good and perfect. In the beginning, God created everything. And he said, of all things, it is good. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, he said, now it will remain in its constant state of good, in its beautiful, perfect state, uh, as long as you don't eat of this tree. And when you eat of this tree, Adam and Eve, when you eat of this tree, death will enter into the world. Decay, disintegration will enter into the world because of that act of disobedience and rebellion against me. That's where it all happens. And Adam and Eve said, we don't believe you. We believe the talking snake more than you. And so we're going to eat of the tree. And guess what entered into the world? Death and decay. Disintegration. It's as if the whole world was decomposing, as it were. That the perfect integration of all things was now being ripped apart. And the world was falling apart. You need to understand that context in order to really understand what Jesus meant when he said, you're salt within the world. Because one of the first things that we need to know about salt is salt acts as a preservative. Salt acts as an agent against decomposition, against disintegration, against decay. Now remember, Jesus was talking in the ancient Near East There were no refrigerators, there were no ice makers, you couldn't pull up, toss a couple of bucks in a machine, put a cooler there, and ice popped out. Uh, He lived in a desert, arid area along the Mediterranean rim. Uh, It was hot, it was dry, and what happened when you had meat, and you put meat out, and you laid it on your counter, and you left that slab of wonderful mutton out on your counter on a Monday, and you came back because you had to go take a quick trip to the little town next to you, and you came back on Saturday, it didn't look the same. And there was a wonderful odorous smell in your home. And there were flies, and there was decomposition. And that chicken that once looked like a chicken now doesn't look quite like a chicken. Because of decay and decomposition. But there was an understood use of salt. 
That if you take salt and you mix it with water and you bathe meat in it or you rub salt into the meat, it preserves it from rotting away. It's been that way all until the modern world. And even now in a modern world, in more primitive areas of the world, they still use salt for that very reason. That's why you understand and you remember the story uh, of uh, Livingston, Dr. David Livingston, when he ministered uh, in the heart of Africa, that he died there. And it says that they took his heart and they buried his heart in Africa because he said, my heart will always be in Africa. But they took his body and they packed it in salt and sent it back to England so that he could be buried in England and his body didn't decay. Jesus is basically saying this. Humanity without me and humanity without you, the believer, and the church is like a rotting corpse that is disintegrating and falling apart. And you, my followers, are the salt that must be rubbed into the flesh of the world to halt that decomposition. That we have a preserving nature by the presence of this from somewhere else into the world. It didn't come from this world because we've represented that the world can't save itself. So Christ entering into the world, bringing something from outside the world himself, his power into the lives now of believers and of the church, that we have a preserving nature in the world around us. The church must be rubbed into the world in order to have any effect on it at all. Think about that picture for a moment. Most of you are going, I don't want to touch the world. I don't want to be touched by the world. I like my sanctified little holy huddle. I like my little Christian group of friends. I I want to do this. And then you wonder sometimes, why am I not having a larger effect on people around me? You haven't been rubbed in. You haven't been taken and, and moved and rubbed upon those who are around you in the most wonderful way. You're not very salty. Some of you are salty, but not biblically. Jesus says that we have to be rubbed in and in our presence with the beauty and the magnificence and the glory of our lives. Have you ever been around someone who is such a godly saint that when they walk into the room, all of a sudden the language of people around them changes, both believer and non-believer? No one would dare curse in front of them. No one would dare tell a dirty joke in front of them. No one would ever do because not because the person is a condescending jerk, but because she or he is such a beautiful person that their presence retards the movement and the decay of evil in the world. Their presence there has that preserving effect on people around them. And it draws and it holds back. And so the church is present and you are present in the world at some level to keep evils expanding from going. That we're to enter into cities. We're to enter into poverty. We're to enter in and we're to be there in the midst of everything that we're in. We're to go into school. We're to go into our businesses. We're to go into all of this. And so that in some sense, we're saying, hey, the world can't stop this. But Christ's kingdom can. You'll still ultimately die, but you won't die. You don't have to feel the full effect of sin within the world. That's part of it. That this retardant, this, this preservation, it draws many people up. Problem is that it's very rarely in so many of our lives that we have a desire to see that happen. We want to be liked by the world. We want to be accepted by the world. So the first thought about salt is that it's a preservative. It helps to stop the decomposition, as it were, of the evil that's going on around us. 
The second attribute of salt, the second characteristic that we'd want to talk about for a moment, is that Christianity, the saltiness of the believer, the biblical saltiness of the believer, brings about a taste to life. It brings about a taste. It's a seasoning. It enhances the beauty and the tastiness of the life that God has given to us in this world. Anne Boleyn once said that nothing tastes She tried it all. She was just mimicking the words uh, of the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, who said, I've done it all. I've tasted it all. And nothing tastes. I've chased after everything. I have not kept myself from indulging in one thing. And you know what I find? Nothing tastes. It's like chasing the wind. Vanity of vanities. All of life is vanity if it's lived under the sun. And so part of the beauty of the Christian being salt in the world is that we, through our lives of being so satisfied in the beauty of who Christ is and transformed by the power of his spirit in our lives and the beauty and all the magnificence of which we live our lives, the world around us goes, that's awesome. You're adding something to the world. It's the believer who should write the best books. We should compose the best music. We should create the most beautiful art. We should have the best businesses. We should be the best educators. We, the Christian church, should be producing all of this in the world. uh, Of saying, we enhance the world. We bring something to life around you. And that the world around who is searching for taste, by the way. If you're here today, and I'm so thankful that you are, and you don't know Jesus, I'm thankful that you're here today in part because what you're saying is that everything else doesn't taste. And you're wondering, maybe today there could be a morsel of hope, something tasty for me to eat that would begin to satisfy the desperate need of my soul. St. Augustine said there is a God-sized hole in each of us. It can only be satisfied and filled in Christ. So the Christian is the one who says, uh, the quote that's in the front of your bulletin, nothing is so beautiful, nothing so continually fresh and surprising, so full of sweet and perpetual ecstasy as good. No dessert is so dreary, monotonous, and boring as evil. Malcolm Muggeridge. Do you believe that? To say, this is best. Let me tell you about the life I live. It is awesome. This life that I found in Christ, it is incredible. And people around you are drawn to go, there is something in you. There is something in your life I am drawn to because my bland vanilla life over here just isn't cutting it for me. But you, you who are follower of Jesus Christ, there's something about you. And I want that something in you because you seem to just, I don't know what it is. There's something about you that enhances everything. It's usually not our evangelism. Our evangelism is, well, life pretty much stinks. And I mean, I, you can't do this. And you can't do that. No premarital sex. No drugs. You can't cheat. I'm supposed to obey the speed limit. I'm supposed to go to church. And I got to read my Bible. And I got to do this. I got to give, give off some money to the church every now and then. And I got to do all this kind of stuff. You want to come? I mean, you're all going to die in the end anyway. At least I get to go to heaven. Versus saying, do you see the magnificence and the beauty of life that brings a taste to life. Why do you think Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding feast? You ever considered that for a moment? It could have been anything. In part, do you think he was saying, I'm the Lord of the dance? I'm the Lord of the festival. 
I'm the Lord of the celebration and life in me. That's where you find the party. Christians, we within the Christian church should party better than anybody else in all of the world. You know that, right? Some of you are going, I've been waiting for that freedom of conscience. Now know that you do it with sobriety. You do it with always an eye uh, to those who are around you, but you do it uh, of eating the best and drinking the best and enjoying the best, of celebrating the depth and the beauty of life. We live by saying this, every single day I'm at a wedding feast. Every single day I get to dance. Every single day I'm invited into the very presence of God through Christ Jesus. My life is awesome. Most of us are like, well, you know, my favorite character in all the Bible, Eeyore. You're like, well, you know. I mean, I love Jesus and all, but house is probably going to die and fall over. I'm going to lose my tail again. Hurts when it gets put on. You want to come to church with me? We wonder why people aren't enticed. Does your life show that enhancement flavorful bit that's sprinkled into the blandness of what the world has to offer, people go, I want to taste that. I want to taste that. Christians also, because of their saltiness, create a thirst for something more. It's similar to the last point, but a little different. Salt brings an enhancement to flavor, but salt, if you've ever taken a big scoop of salt and eaten it, guess what? You're thirsty immediately. Salt creates a thirst Salt makes you thirsty. Christians should also create a thirstiness for something more in the world that we need to look and find in our deep satisfaction in God, the pointing to something more and saying we have that and we've found that and the world says, I want to find that too. I want to see that as well. Another characteristic of salt is that salt makes its presence known. A little bit of salt makes its presence known. You can tell when there's a little bit of salt. One of my fun stories with a buddy of mine, we were up in Rock Hill and we were getting ready to actually come down to Hilton Head to play golf for the weekend a number of years ago. And we were at his house and we were wanting to get on the road early and it was 4.30 in the morning and we had the coffee uh, going and we poured a big cup of coffee and I needed some uh, sugar in my coffee. And so at 4.30, I wasn't very awake. So I reached, got a little scoop of sugar so I didn't want too much sugar. So I put it in. It was salt. Guess what the salt let me know? That it was Salt. It didn't take much salt to let me know that I'd put salt into my coffee. It doesn't take much. And what that means for you, believer, follower of Jesus Christ, he can use your seemingly insignificant life. You're small in your mind life. You're small within our culture's mind life. He can use it to powerfully shape wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Consider William Wilberforce for a moment. Those of you who are history buffs know Wilberforce. What a great name, William Conqueror. Wilberforce, big name. You ever seen a description of Wilberforce? He was overcome by disease. He was elfish in size and small. And he didn't speak well. And God used this tiny, little, sick man to stop the slave trade in the Western world. Because God said it doesn't take much salt. As my mom used to say, Billy, it's you plus God. That's That's a majority anywhere you go. So God can use you where you are. God can use the smallness, as it were, of your life. 
So God can do this, but hey, here's the next point real quick. You got to get out of the salt shaker. Salt is no good unless it gets out of the salt shaker. And for way, way, way too many of us, we love life in the salt shaker because we enjoy other salty people because we can talk about salt things and we can condemn pepper. That we can talk about how bad everybody outside of our wonderful little shaker is and how thankful we are that God made us salt and not pepper. And we praise Him for getting us in the salt shaker. And we just love it and we are just wonderful in our holy huddles and in our great little groups. And then we wonder why we have no effectiveness within the world and it's because we're still in the shaker. And God is saying salt is only good when it's shaken out. And that you are in the world salt in order to be rubbed into the world, in order to come and to have an effect upon the world. But in order to do that, you got to engage the world. You got to know some unbelievers. You have to be engaged in the culture. You got to go into poverty. You have to go into education. You have to go into the arts. You need to go into law. You need to go into finance. You need to go into real estate. You need to go into all of these places shining the light of Christ. In order to have an effect. Isn't it amazing? We wonder why in the world that we have so little effect on our culture around us. And all we really need to do is look at this. Where has the church left? The church has left the city and the church has left the places of influence. The church is weak in New York. It is weak in Boston. It is weak in Washington, D.C. It is weak in Chicago. It is weak in Hollywood. It is weak in the cultural centers of our country. And we wonder why. Because Christians have stepped out and we want to have an outside-in influence. Guess what? That never happens. It only happens by going in and then moving out. It's hard for me to say that preaching on Hilton Head. But here's what we can do while on Hilton Head, rally all of the resources that we have that God has given to us to help those who are in those places of influence, go and support them, go and encourage them, go and cheer them on and say, we're going to take all of this wonderful stuff and all the gifts and this that God has given us and we're getting out of the salt shaker and we're coming with you and we're supporting and cheering you on. We have to get out of the salt shakers, folks. But here's a warning. Be careful not to lose your saltiness. Jesus wouldn't have warned it if it wasn't possible. He said, here's the problem with salt. If it loses its taste, how's it going to get its taste restored? It's good for absolutely nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. He's not saying that you can lose your salvation. That's not what that says. But it, can't, it is saying you can lose your effectiveness in the world. You can lose your way. You can lose your purpose in that. If you don't believe that, go on a tour of thriving churches along the northern African border, along the Middle East, and along the Mediterranean and into Europe. Guess what you will find? Unsalty churches. They lost their salt. And they've had little or no effect in the world anymore. And it's a sad day because God says, if you've lost your saltiness, you don't have a purpose. You're thrown out. You may fill in a crack or two on a sidewalk, but you won't have the intended purpose for your life. You have to be resalted. You have to come back 
to Christ. You have to allow Him to supernaturally fill you again. Come back to the ordinary means of His grace, a table of His Word, of prayer, of fellowship, uh, of being intimately with Him. Allow Him to resalt you. Allow Him uh, to re-transform you, to revive you. That's why the church should constantly be praying for revival that we need the Lord to revive us, to resalt us, to relight us. We don't have much time to get to the light metaphor. We're going to touch on it in a moment. But this great and incredible picture of the Holy Spirit can resalt us. And part of the fun of my job, by the way, is seeing so many of your lives get salt back in them. To see some of you who came down to this area of the country just to kick it and just to relax. And God has said, no, I've got more for you to do. I've seen you go into prisons. I've seen you go down into Panama City. I've seen you go and care for single moms. I've seen you move into poverty within our culture. I've seen you do things. And you're like, I didn't know this is awesome. Being resalted is awesome, by the way. Being revived is awesome. Any of you experience that in your life? If so, raise your hand. Because there's some folks who need to talk to you. They need to be drawn to you and go, I'm feeling a little saltless. Go to somebody and say, hey, here's, here's what God's done in my life in this way. So that's salt. Four minutes or less, we're going to talk about light. <laughs> Should be a whole other sermon, but it's not. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Starting in the same starting point as we did with salt, consider the condition of the world. It says that the world is in darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and I enter into the world, into the darkness of the world, but the world loved the darkness more than it loved me. It's one thing to just be in darkness But it's another thing to be in it intentionally. And Jesus says the world is dark. It is darkened in its mind. It's darkened in its knowledge. It's dark. It's evil. Evil lurks within the darkness. And then Jesus made this incredible statement. He goes, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Interesting that that Jesus said those words on the day after the last night of the festival in Jerusalem, and at the end of that festival, the big Passover festival, there was what was known that last night was the illumination of the temple. And the illumination of the temple, four candelabras uh, in the treasury court uh, were as tall as the tallest walls of the temple. And on top, they had cauldrons that could hold 60 liters of oil. Uh, and they would fill those with oil and they would light them on that last night and they would dance around before the Lord. And, and young men and Levites and others would would dance before him, being reminded that it was God who by his Shekinah glory led the people of Israel out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage, and his Shekinah glory descended upon the tabernacle, and his Shekinah glory came into Solomon's temple, and Jesus just happened to be there the next morning while there was probably still smoke coming out, and he said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the Shekinah glory. It was me who led you out of Egypt. It was me who descended into the tabernacle. It was me who descended into the temple. I am the light of the world. There's light 
And it's a supernatural light that has to come in from outside because the world can't conjure up its own light. The world can't see that it's in darkness. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he said this, I'm the light of the world. Guess who else now is the light of the world? Because I'm going back. I'm going back to my father. And now you're the light of the world. You, followers of me, believers of Jesus Christ, Christian, church, you're the light of the world. You are shining into the world. Jesus didn't make the world's darkness darker. He just exposed it for what it was. The Christian does not make the world's darkness darker. We just expose it for what it is. It says that we're a light on a hill. That we are a city on a hill. There's a great place coming down uh, from Highlands, North Carolina. As you head down the mountain uh, towards Clemson. And there's an overpass that you can stop and you can look out. And at night on a clear evening, you can look out and you can see cities and towns all over the place. Because they're lit up. Because that's what towns do at night. Cities shine. They're visible. So what he's saying here that you're a light, you're visible. There's no such thing as an invisible Christian. So let your light shine in the world, that it shines out of you. You have the third person, uh, uh, the second person of the Trinity living in you, his spirit dwelling within you, third person, and it is shining out through you that Christians, we are light within the world, a city uh, on a hill, and we're not to cover up that light. You're a light on the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Why would you ever want to hide your light? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, if you find yourself hiding your light, you need to ask the question whether it's true light at all. Because if it's the light of Christ, we want it to shine out within us. We are partakers of the divine nature. We at one time were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, Ephesians 5, 8. So we're a city on a hill that is visible, and that we are a light within a house. We provide illumination for the light around us. It says that you are strategically set on a lampstand. That you are set strategically by God to illuminate the world around, to show it for what it really is, and then to lead it into the path of safety to come back to Christ. That you're strategically placed in your family. Wonderful testimony I heard recently of a young lady who came from a a horrific family background. She came to faith in Christ through the invitation of a friend to youth group. And she said, I went back to my family and my family hadn't changed at all, but I had. And God strategically used her powerfully within her family to shine the light of Christ. And a number of her, her siblings and of her parents came to faith through her. You're strategically placed in your workplace. You're strategically placed in your, in your school, on your team, in your community, in your tennis league. Whatever it is, you are strategically placed there by God to shine a light. That by your life, people go, oh my gosh, I didn't know how dark my darkness was. But when I see it in comparison to the light that I see in you, I'm drawn to that. You are placed strategically in your singleness, in your marriedness, in your divorcedness, uh, in your widowness. You are strategically placed with children or without children. God is saying, shine your light there in all of those places. One person wrote it this way, and I love it. Brighten the corner you're in. Don't look for another corner or a bigger corner. Just brighten the corner you're in. Start there. Start small, go deep, and then think about the expansion of it. And the final thing I'll say is this. We as Christians are to point people towards God's glory and His life. 
in our lives. He said, do all of these things, so let your light shine, so they'll see your good deeds, the beauty of your good deeds, and they will come and they will find glory in me. So I guess the question that we'll end with today is this. Does your life, the beauty of it and the magnificence of what you experience in Christ, does it draw people to want him? Are they drawn to the same one that you're drawn to in Christ? And if it's not, if maybe you're sitting there today going, I need to repent of some things, here's the beauty of this table. It's for repentant sinners to come and to find hope in him. This table as a means of grace helps to resalt us It helps to reflame the fire within us. It is a means of God's grace to us by which we experience his presence and the beauty of the gospel in such a way that we say, take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, unto thee. I want to do this. So let's come now to this table. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness to us. I ask that you would move now. And as we approach this table, we approach it in contrition, and in humility, and in confession. That for some of us, we have tried to hide the light. We don't enjoy this taste of salt, even in our own lives. And so we come, and we ask that you would be merciful to us. Hear our prayers. Friends, would you pray with me the prayer printed for you?